Warfarin is one anticoagulant that presents a challenge to clinicians, although low molecular weight heparins can be equally tricky, especially when it comes to dosing decisions in the obese, the renally compromised, and in patients with changing pharmacokinetics. How can we tailor our clinical approach to specific subtypes of patients who require anticoagulation? Welcome to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk, PharmD. Our guest is Dr. Kate Phillips, PharmD, clinical specialist in cardiology and anticoagulation at the Boston Medical Center. Dr. Phillips also recently authored a review article on anticoagulation and special patient populations that was published in the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy. Dr. Phillips, welcome to the program. Thank you. As I mentioned before, there are a number of different patient subsets who require a slightly different approach to anticoagulation. I wanted to ask you about a few, starting with the obese patient. So when do you elect to use a low molecular weight heparin to treat venous thromboembolism in someone with normal kidney function? You typically use a weight-based dose, you know, regardless of whether you're talking about anoxaparin, daltaparin, tinzaparin. But say you get like a 250-kilo patient with a pulmonary embolism of unknown origin. First off, should you use actual or ideal body weight when dosing? In obese patients, I personally have never treated a patient that was 250 kilos, but I think the maximum weight I've treated is upwards of 200 kilograms. But we should be using actual body weight for all obese patients. Studies have looked at anti-factor 10A levels that show the same degree of anticoagulation in obese patients versus non-obese patients using actual body weight. The anti-10A has correlated in these patients. And at one point, there was thinking that we should have a dosing cap on weight for use in these patients. But the thought is now that there should be no dosing caps, that for patients 100 kilograms versus 200 kilograms, they should be treated the same with actual body weight. So in the case of your 200-kilo patient, you'd treat them with something like 200 milligrams of, say, of anoxaparin twice a day? Yes. So, you know, as mentioned to the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic data, four anticoagulants within this patient population really are limited. You mentioned a good point as far as twice a day versus once a day. Studies have shown that when looking at, for example, anoxaparin 1 mg per kg BID versus 1.5 mg per kg daily, that they actually saw increased incidence of venous thromboembolism in obese patients with the once-daily dosing. So for these patients, we recommend using actual body weight, 1 mg per kg of anoxaparin twice daily. What's the utility of monitoring anti-10A levels, and what are our goal ranges? Anti-factor 10A measures the anti-activated factor 10 that's in the blood. Activated factor 10 in the blood is affected by heparin molecules, heparin-like agents. Anti-10A monitoring we utilize in special patient populations such as patients that have an extremely low body weight. In obese patients, the guidelines recommend greater than 190 kilograms if available to monitor anti-10A levels. We'll also utilize them in patients that are pregnant or patients with questionable renal function. What the anti-factor 10A level is going to give us is it's going to let us know if the patient is accumulating the medication or if they're clearing it appropriately. An anti-10A level should be taken four hours after the anoxaparin dose is given or the low molecular weight heparin is given. It's taken at the peak of action of the low molecular weight heparin. And the goal levels will vary based on if anoxaparin is being given daily, if it's being given twice daily, 
the levels in the literature that are best documented are those for treatment doses. So in monitoring levels in patients that are on prophylaxis, it's a little bit less clear. You'd alluded to this a little bit before, but let's jump to those patients with renal insufficiency, given that that package labeling oftentimes contains uh, fairly strong, <laughs> strongly worded cautions about using low molecular weight heparins in patients with uh, renal dysfunction. What are some examples of when you might choose to use low molecular weight heparins versus simply switching to unfractionated heparin? Patients with chronic renal insufficiency have an inherent increased bleeding risk purely due to the uremic state that patients are in with renal insufficiency. So at baseline, they have an increased risk of bleeding, and then we're putting these anticoagulants on top of that. I typically feel comfortable. The guidelines and the package inserts of these medications do have dosing recommendations for, say, creatinine clearance less than 30, how you dose suggest. I think in particular, it gets into a little bit more of a gray area when you have patients that are on dialysis. There's not as much literature for low molecular weight heparin use in dialysis patients. But for patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 30, I feel pretty comfortable as long as the low molecular weight heparin is appropriately dose reduced. Now, you also have, you know, sort of the nebulous, well, what about a creatinine clearance of 30 to 50? So they don't have outright renal insufficiency, but they're sort of in that moderate period. And those are the types of patients that potentially anti-factor 10A levels may have some type of utility. But in patients with, you know, decreased creatinine clearance, there has been a linear relationship between anti-10A plasma clearance and creatinine clearance. And in patients that have creatinine clearance less than 30, those anti-10A plasma levels are increased, which is indicative of the need to decrease doses in these patients. And the other thing to mention, with patients that have renal insufficiency, as I mentioned at baseline, they do have an inherent increased risk of bleeding risk. So these patients, we really need to ensure that we are dosing them appropriately. There have been some registries published, such as the Crusade Registry, that has shown that in these patients, we typically do overdose them based on you know, weight calculations and even a dose increase of even 10 milligrams can lead to increased bleeding on top of their sort of inherent baseline bleeding risk. So we really do need to focus on renal insufficiency patients when we are using low molecular weight heparins to ensure that we are giving them the appropriate dose. I know that it's hard to simply take a single characteristic and use it as being representative of the whole patient. And in other words, I know that, you know, different clinical circumstances will dictate different courses of action. But that being said, at what point do you start to consider anti-10A monitoring in a patient with renal insufficiency who's being treated with a low molecular weight heparin? I think you do have to sort of look at the patient and whole look at their clinical picture. If we have a patient who's going to be on a low molecular weight heparin for an extended period of time. Again, I don't think this is evidence-based, but say we have a patient that has a decreased creatinine clearance, less than 30, we've dose suggest them, and they're going to require it for at least greater than five days. Me being a little bit conservative may actually get a level just to ensure that they are clearing it. You know, I can't say there's one specific characteristic that would automatically key you off to uh, monitor anti-10As in all renal patients. So in patients with renal dysfunction, what sort of anti-10A levels are we looking for to ensure that there isn't any kind of drug accumulation going on? To ensure that we're not having low molecular weight heparin accumulate in these patients, 
in monitoring an anti-10A level, it should be a peak level approximately four hours after the low molecular weight heparin is given. And the goal for venous thromboembolism treatment, assuming that they have been dose-reduced and are on once-daily therapy, should be approximately one to two units per ml. And that's the goal for, again, venous thromboembolism to ensure that we're not accumulating it. Do you ever monitor troughs at all? So that's a little bit more of a gray area as far as measuring troughs for anti-10A monitoring. At this point, most of the literature and the data out there refers to peak levels, and the goals that we have are peak levels. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Focus on Pharmacy. I'm your host, Dr. Charles Turk. Our guest is Dr. Kate Phillips, PharmD, Clinical Specialist in Cardiology and Anticoagulation at the Boston Medical Center. We're discussing anticoagulation and special patient population and changing gears for just a moment. What can you tell us about heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? What is it and how does it come about? Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or referred to as HIT, is an immune-mediated transient prothrombotic adverse drug reaction that we see in approximately 5% of patients that receive unfractionated heparin or, I guess, essentially any heparin agent. HIT is an immune-mediated adverse reaction that we see when heparin binds to platelet factor 4, which is a chemokine that's stored in platelet granules, which bind to IgG antibodies they react and they form an immune complex. These immune complexes then bind to the circulating platelets that cause platelet activation and aggregation. As a result, when activated, platelets will further release platelet factor four and result in additional immune complexes that are formed and continued platelet activation. So despite the fact that platelets are, in a sense, being gobbled up by the immune system, they're also releasing these prothrombotic factors that increase the risk of thromboembolism. Yes. What are some of the complications and consequences of HIT? So there are actually two different types of HIT. There's HIT type 1, which is a transient drop in platelets. Platelets typically remain above 100,000 in HIT type 1. You will see the slight thrombocytopenia or slight drop in platelets within the first one to three days of heparin administration. And in these patients, you're really not too concerned about other complications and you can leave the heparin on and the platelets should come up to baseline despite the heparin therapy being continued. HIT type 2 is the immune-mediated response that we are most concerned about. In these patients, you will see a drop in platelets that's either greater than 50% from their baseline. Platelets typically do fall less than 100,000. And these patients are at risk for forming thrombosis. So type 2 HIT is typically treated with intravenous direct thrombin inhibitors. But I wanted to get to something that's become a little bit more of a hot topic lately, and that's the role of uh, the subcutaneous drug Fondaparinux in the treatment of HIT or the prevention of venous thromboembolism in patients with a history of HIT. So Fondaparinux is a pentasaccharide factor 10A inhibitor. It's often recently used now instead of a direct thrombin inhibitor for patients with HIT, although it does not have an FDA approval for this indication. To date, Fondaparinox does not appear to bind to platelet factor 4 to a substantial extent. 
and it inhibits negligible in vitro cross-reactivity with HIT antibodies, therefore seemingly being a potential option to use in HIT patients. This could be due to the fact that fondaparinox does have a short chain sequence, which may result in the inability to alter that platelet factor 4 and provide the same type of immune-mediated reactions with IgG that we see during heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. There was a recent case report that was rare but explained a HIT-type reaction and thrombosis that was seen in a patient that did receive fondaparinox. That's the only case report to date that has been documented. Fondaparinox is convenient to use. It's once daily dosing. It's a subcutaneous injection, which makes it favorable over the direct thrombin inhibitors, which are both IV infusions and require extensive monitoring and have complicated dosing. Fondaparinox is cost-effective. So I think because of all of these factors, there's no cross-reactivity. It makes sense that anecdotally, a lot of institutions do feel comfortable and a lot of practitioners do feel comfortable utilizing fondaparinox in the treatment of HIT. In addition, fondaparinox, since it does not lead to the development of HIT in patients that are initially treated or used prophylaxis with fondaparinox, the thought is that we will see decreased rates of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia as well. But as far as the FDA indication for HIT, that's not there, and there is, you know, limited literature that supports the use of fondaparinox, but anecdotally, it does potentially have a role. And again, so far, that single-case report that was published in the New England Journal that hasn't necessarily dissuaded you from using fondaparinox in patients with a history of HIT? No. To my understanding, practitioners and many of my colleagues still, you know, feel comfortable despite this case report in using it in patients to sort of treat them that have HIT, or let's say they have HIT, they're on a DTI for three to five days, and then for transition purposes, they'll utilize fondaparinox. Here at our institution, we don't feel 100% comfortable using fondaparinox for acute treatment of HIT or HIT just because of the lack of data. However, we do frequently use it in patients that do have a history of HIT and practitioners you know, don't feel comfortable putting on or sort of challenging the patient with a heparin-type product. We will use fondaparinox. We've been talking with Kate Phillips about anticoagulation in special patient populations. Thank you, Dr. Phillips, for being our guest. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Focus on Pharmacy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. I'm Dr. Charles Turk, and thank you for listening.